Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
the number is 347-308-8790. And I'll, like I said, I'll keep watching the switchboard, and I'll, I'll get you on the air if you have some uh, questions or comments, <clears throat> or if you just want to listen. Uh, if I open the mic and you just want to listen, just say I'm just listening, and I'll uh, I'll close it back off. All right. Some of the, some of the numbers I recognize from you folks from from recent uh, callers, <clears throat> but uh, uh, Sam is, uh, has been with me almost since the beginning of the show. I mean, we've been doing the show for almost five years now, actually for over five years, <clears throat> and. Uh, and every time I'm on the air, he's there with me, uh, handling all the calls. Uh, he helps me with the research. Uh, he chimes in from time to time. Uh, usually he is, uh, uh, usually the times before when I've clicked open his mic, uh, you guys will hear that rattling sound in there, and that's usually him uh, sorting through brass or reloading shells, stuff like that, while he's also doing the call screen. <laughs> uh, and he also... Uh, and if you hear any other noises in the background, those are the the big flock of ducks that he keeps there in order to train his herding dogs. So he also is a, a dog trainer and uh, does a lot of uh, uh, herding dog training. And uh, and Sam is a true patriot, uh, a man to ride the river with, and and just a damn fine guy. <clears throat> Uh, I'd also like to thank some of my other, some of the other folks that uh, work here at Battle Road with us. Uh, my partner, uh, Mark Martinez, he uh, yeah, he does a good job uh, here with the company. Uh, some of our additional staff members, members uh, Chuck Leeming, uh, Larry Coonrod, uh, Rachel Malone. Uh, all of these folks uh, are working hard to make sure that the folks who attend courses at Battle Road are getting the absolute best instruction and training they can get. <clears throat> Which reminds me, I'm going to mention uh, very quickly that uh, we have the first installment of our Ghosts of Goliad Fundamentals of Rifle Marksmanship uh, Program two-day course coming up this weekend. And uh, I'd like to extend a last-minute invitation uh, to folks to attend the event here in Central Texas. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about it, you can go to uh, www.battleroadusa.com and uh, there'll be a list of links at the top and you can click on the uh, Ghost of Goliad and they'll give you a little bit more information about what we're going to do. It's a two-day Fundamentals of Rifle Marksmanship course. We're going to have a lot of good instructors. And listen, we've been teaching this course uh, for over nine years, we've been teaching these fundamentals of rifle marksmanship courses to folks, and we've taught the course to thousands of shooters. <clears throat> and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to mention that uh, the uh, – well, here, let me just say, put it this way. A lot of times when I talk to folks about it and they hear me say fundamentals of rifle marksmanship, they're like, uh, look, I, I don't want to, you know, I was in the military. Uh, I, I, you know, I did shooting. and or, You know, my, my dad and my uncle and I, we shoot all the time. And, 
you know, I don't need these the little fundamental classes and stuff like that. I, you know, I need a, I need something like a practical rifle or something like that. And I'll say, well, practical rifle. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, practical rifle, of course. I say, well, you mean something like, uh, <clears throat> something that teaches you how to uh, shoot accurately, rapidly, uh, like making uh, shooting uh, ten rounds into a postage stamp at eighty-two feet in 50 seconds with uh, magazine changes, uh, shooting from different positions and uh, and doing uh, m- uh, shooting at multiple targets, uh, stuff like that under time constraints. Yeah, 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 something like that. <clears throat> well, that's exactly what we're going to do. That's exactly what we're going to teach you. On top of that, we're going to teach you the fundamentals, which are the building blocks of becoming a consistent and accurate shooter. You must have a good grasp of the fundamentals in order for you to become a an accurate and consistent shooter. Uh, there's no way around it. Uh, there's no you're not going to you're not going to be lucky 99% of the time and luck your shots onto the target. You're going to have to make the shot. The only way to make the shot is to have a good grasp of the fundamentals. And that's what we're going to teach you. The the courses that we're running, as I said, have been attended by thousands of folks. And on any weekend, uh, we could have had uh, on one end of the line a person who comes up to me and says, hey, look, uh, I just stopped on the way here at Walmart and I bought a rifle, but I, I've never I've never taken out of the box and I, I've never even shot a rifle. I haven't even touched a rifle before. Is, it, is this still going to work for me? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. On the other end of the line, I may have a couple of guys that say, hey, uh, we're going to be deploying in uh, six months, and uh, we're getting ready to take the uh, squad-designated rifle and marksmanship course and the uh, sniper course. Going to help me? Absolutely it's going to help you because it's going to lay a foundation uh, for you to build those other courses on top of. <clears throat> so shooters of all skill levels will benefit from these courses. When I first began teaching this course uh, about nine years ago, I went to one of the initial training sessions, and uh, it was an eight-day training session. And with me uh, was a guy from Virginia, Doug, Doug Bronenberg, who was who shot competitively uh, for the Navy for 42 years. And guess what? He learned a lot of stuff during those eight days. Not only that, but I thought one of the most important things that I heard him say was, hey, man, I wish I would have taken this course before I started my shooting career. It's going to... uh, it's going to give you the information, the skills and techniques that uh, you may very well learn uh, over the course of, uh, you know, uh, 10, 11, 12 years of uh, constant shooting, hanging around with other shooters, stuff like that. But why stretch it out for that long? Why not come and grab it all, uh, wrap it all up, uh, let us wrap it all up with a bow for you, and you stick it in your bag, and you start your your building on top of a solid fundamentals foundation right there and there, all right? Uh, I also 
uh, have been talking to several of the three percenters, the self-reliance and prepping folks, the survival uh, uh, groups, because uh, rifle marksmanship is one of the tools that uh, you will need uh, as far as making sure that you that you have all of the things that you need for your self-reliance toolkit. Now, let me say this too: it's 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 by far. Uh, well, I guess it's going to depend on the exact situation, but it, it is not the only tool you'll need, and most of the time, it's not the most important one. But it is certainly tool for you to keep in your in your skills bag. So for the uh, self-reliance, uh, prepping, survival folks, this is a course that you're going to need. This can uh, get everybody on the same page very quickly. That means all of the folks in your group uh, who who you would like to get up to speed, uh, you know, very rapidly and get on the same page, this is the course for you because we can take everybody in your group uh, from uh, seven, eight, nine-year-old kids uh, to your mother and grandmother uh, and get them all up to speed on the same page so that they're understanding what it takes in order to make the shot. And the same thing with all of your, with all of the pre three percent groups and stuff like that. Most of you guys have uh, some type of military background, but there are a lot of folks that don't. So how do you get bead and get everybody on the same page Get everybody a uh, uh, a good, a consistent uh, set of training tools they can use uh, <clears throat> that will that will go across all service member boundaries and stuff like that. That's what this course will do for you. <clears throat> uh, for the folks who have been going to the range for for the last two or three decades, or maybe you just started going to the range, you know, either way. Uh, if you're anything like me, when I first started going to the range, uh, and this is even after I had uh, a pretty decent amount of uh, of military instruction, when I started going to the range, I, I was a little bit uh, lost as far as what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, I, I, I had the military rifle instruction courses, and you know we shot at uh, targets. We shot through the the silhouettes, uh, the pop-ups, and everything else like that. I shot on a military biathlon team with the M14. <clears throat> but still, if you don't have some type of regimented uh, training that you're working on. When you get to the range, you'll get there and you'll get all set up and everything and you'll go post a target and you'll shoot at it and you'll maybe try and make sure you got your zero going and stuff like that. But after that, you're really kind of at a loss of what you're supposed to be doing, of what you're supposed to be working on. And once you've taken this course, it will certainly give you a, a great deal of stuff that you won't you won't be confused when you go to the range from now on. You you will know what you need to work on, 
I'm got. Uh, I'm waiting for Tina to call in. Uh, he's going to. Uh, he's going to do an after action on the Pecos event. So uh, I wanted to do that before I got started. But uh, let me uh, <coughs> let me just drop a note to him real quick, and uh, I'll remind him. Okay, I'll try to remind him to uh to call in so that uh so that he can give a uh give a uh an after action because we had uh, uh we just had uh the Pecos running gun in the sun uh this last uh this last weekend. Now they got rained out. But uh, but the RO still ran the event, and uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to give him a chance to call in. But we'll just we'll go ahead and get started because uh, because uh, this is going to take a while anyway. If, if he calls in, we will uh, we'll take a break and take his call. And anybody else that wants to call in, you're more than welcome to call in. Uh, the uh, number is 347 308 8790. Here he is here. Uh, I was just telling them that I was trying to give you a call to uh, remind you to call in. And uh, I got your. I got your notice about not having a uh, voice box set up. So, anyway, welcome to the show. This is uh, my business partner, uh, Mark Martinez. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. I was getting ready to call in, but I heard you talking about making a shot, and I said, ooh, this sounds good, so I was going to listen in on that as well. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to go ahead and get you uh, get you to uh, give an after-action report before I got started because uh, – I didn't know if you had something to do or you know or something like that, so I wanted to get uh, get the after action out for folks to listen to and then we'll and then we'll barrel back into uh making the shot okay well, as you know uh Pecos is the granddaddy of all biathlons, probably uh I believe the first one at least that we know of <clears throat> run by uh Smokey Briggs and Larry Longoria, and uh they've been doing it. For 13 years, this was the 13th year, the lucky 13, and uh, we did get some rain. Now, the, we've had rain before, and actually heavy rain out there, which is uh, not very comfortable, but you do learn a lot about your equipment in the rain, and uh, it's really not all that bad. But this one was canceled for the actual runners, not due to the rain, but because of the dangerous flooding. Uh, this was Pecos. Worst flood, I think they said, in over 50 years, and the Pecos Dam was in danger of breaking, which would have been bad. And part of the course we run through, uh, I had uh, taken a picture while I was going through it, and I was normally the desert is dry out there. You don't have any water. But I was crossing water that was about uh, maybe just over my ankles, not too bad. Well, the next day, that little stream there, there were spots in it where it was maybe four or five feet deep, 
the water was raging. It looked like rapids. And uh, I think they made the right, right call. Anybody could slip and fall in there, and God forbid their equipment or something gets hung up on a, a route or whatever, and you can have a really bad result. However, uh, like you mentioned earlier, the range officers, just like at our biathlon, they run the day before, and I was a range officer as well. So I ran with, uh, I don't know, about 30 other people that Friday. And overall, it was a good day. It it started off drizzling and gloomy. By the time I got out for my run, it was, uh, oh, it's just like Pecos, nice, bright, and sunny. You could feel the heat. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and towards the end, what really motivated me to get in was I could see lightning and clouds coming in. And I think uh, maybe the five people behind me, including uh, Smokey Briggs, uh, one of the founders, they came in in this terrible storm. I, I have no idea how they could have even shot. You couldn't see. It was so strange because, like I said, I've seen, I've had rain in, in the deserts there, but not like this. I don't think you could see, you know, 30 yards in front of you. It was just crazy. And, uh, they got caught up in that stuff for a while, so I know they had a rough time on their last few stages. But overall, like I said, for if uh, you got lucky and ran either a little before me or during my time, it really wasn't that bad. You had a clear day, and uh, I guess for me and a handful of people, it was a good run. It, it was a fun time out there, like it always is. Well, how did uh, you said that it wasn't raining that much when you were out there? I mean, when you were right. your run? You know, it's typical Texas weather in the morning. Going over there, it was raining. Then when the race started, I, you know, I worked the stations for the first half of the morning, or I guess the day, actually. And then, you know, we swap out, and those working the stations, well, now you go run, and the people who ran before you, they go work the stations. So the next day, all of us ROs can just stay on the stations and let the participants come through. So, look as you know, I guess luck of the draw, I got the uh, uh, to run in the afternoon, and so it did rain during the morning, but it stopped. It probably stopped about two hours before my actually start my my start time. So the sun came out and dried up a lot of stuff. Still a little muddy in some places. Some a lot of water still standing, like I mentioned earlier, but it wasn't that uh, terrible storm the folks after me had to deal with. Right, because uh, I've shot. Uh, I shot in a, a torrential downpour up in up in Vermont. Uh, even shooting, you know, out to uh, 500 meters in Vermont, and uh, it is tricky. And uh, you know, you learn a lot of things shooting in the rain, just like you do shooting in any uh, inclement weather. But uh, you know, it's not easy to make a shot at distance in a heavy rain because, uh, you know, first off, you, it's hard to see your target. Hard to see your target, hard to keep your eyes open while uh, the rain is splashing onto your sights or onto your rifle, back up in your eyes, and stuff like that. And uh, and uh, let's tell folks a little bit about Pecos. Pecos is uh, about seven miles, about a seven-mile loop, and uh, there's what, six, still six shooting stations, right? They change it up every so often, but on average, yes, there, there's about six shooting stations out there. And, uh, you know, it is cross-country in the desert, so they have a lot of hills, rocks, brush you have to go through, everything. All the vegetation there has some type of uh, 
uh, thorn in it. So uh, it, it's always an adventure when you run through there. And, right. Um, I was talking to Tommy. Tommy said that he uh, he was crossing the water. And I don't know where, where Tommy ran in the lineup where he ran, but he said he was crossing the water, and uh, he said it was about uh, oh, about calf and knee deep. But then his next step, he stepped in a hole, and uh, he said it uh, it went really deep. He figured it was probably about chest deep, but when he stepped in the hole, he kind of fell into it backwards, so he went in over his head. He still held his rifle up out of the water, but he said he went you know underwater for a second. Now was that on uh, was that after the the storm started, or how did he end up in a crossing a river like that? Well, it had been raining the day before. And so that's how we got that standing water out there. And, and you're, he's right. Uh, the areas I crossed, I stayed towards the edge because I did hear Tommy say that he did go in over his head. And, you know, Tommy is about two feet taller than myself. So I figure, you know, if I <laughs> mess around and go in the middle, I'm going to be swimming or, you know, I might have to jettison some equipment to get back up to the surface. And I, So I stayed right near the edge, and I didn't want to risk uh, going through the center of it. But uh, I, oh, I know the area you were talking about, and yeah, and that's some of the dangerous spots. And that was when we ran. So the next day, it was—I'm sure it was even way deeper than that. Wow. Well, it's sad that uh, that they had to call off, uh, you know, the full run because that gives you a chance to see where you uh, where your scores fit in with uh, you know the rest of the participants because. Uh, there's a good group of runners that uh, do the Pecos event on a, on a regular basis. They're there year after year. And uh, some of these guys are smoking fast. Uh, you remember what the, uh, the the fastest time is? I mean, wasn't it uh, the last time I did it was uh, one, two, two years ago, and I thought that there was a 48-minute time for someone. Uh, I don't I, know. Am I wrong? That would be smoking, but uh, I, I really don't know. I, I think a, a really fast time out there would probably be about an hour, 20 minutes or, or so. It, okay, that's right. pretty darn fast. Uh, yeah, because you're going almost seven miles, and you got to remember, you got to shoot at each of these stations, too. You have the safety briefing and everything else and shoot. So <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a lot going on in this event. It's a great event, and Smokey Briggs... Uh, is a great guy, and all his all the staff that work out there with him are great guys too. Uh, uh, Larry Longoria, uh, and then all of the regulars, the folks that go out there on a regular basis to uh, to run the event at RO, uh, like you, uh, Tommy Newton, Brett Anderson, uh, all of the guys that uh, that show up out there year after year to help run the event, and then uh, uh, and then the regular runners that come on. Uh, on the Saturday, it's a it's a great group of folks. You're out in the middle of the desert. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interaction among the people that come to shoot. Uh, a lot of good uh, sportsmanship. There's a lot of good discussion around the campfire. Smokey will uh, end up cooking a meal uh, for just about uh, just about anyone that shows up out there and spends a night. You'll He'll probably feed you something, even if you have to hack down some cactus or something and fry it, uh, barbecue it up for you. He'll feed. He'll feed you something because that's just the kind of guy he is. And uh, and then uh, the 
ROs will run on Friday. The rest of the crew runs on Saturday. And then they give uh, folks enough time to uh, to dash into town, maybe even uh, get cleaned up a little bit, and then have a dinner uh, at, uh, at the local hall there. And uh, they give out the uh, awards and stuff. And uh, it's just a... Uh, it's just a really great event. Now it's not uh, like your uh, like if you participate in three gun matches and stuff like that. It's not like that. It's not uh, it's not uh, high speed, low drag. It is uh, it's a good uh, consistent uh, pace uh, broken up by some uh, some very uh, relevant shooting stations and. Uh, and a lot of desert. <clears throat> yeah, you're, well, you're right, it, and it, it definitely is a different event. I've, uh, you know, I, I like I've told you before, I've fired some uh, three gun before, and it is fun. I uh, I enjoyed it while I did it. I never placed way up the top. You know, I always got the leftovers at the prize table. Didn't do that great, but uh, it was a lot of fun. But it, it, since I've been doing these biathlons. And, you know, I'll go up and do a three-gun with some friends. Again, it, it, it's a good time out there, but to me, there's just something missing. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it's just, for me, it's two different sports, you know, baseball and football or, or whatever. I just prefer the biathlon. It's just, it, you know, it, it, you've, you've done them before, so, you know, it's something totally different out right. there. And I'm not talking about just somebody who's running out there you know, killing themselves, uh, even the folks who go out there and walk it, they, they enjoy it. Because even if you have to walk four miles, five, six, seven, with all your gear, that's something most people don't normally do, unless you're in the military or something like that. And for most of us, that was years ago. <laughs> right. And, uh, and uh, on that note, we'll let folks know that we're getting ready to uh... – we're getting ready to do uh, another event like that. We have our own event coming up, and that's the uh, the Battle Road USA's uh, Zombie Biathlon. Now, ours is a little bit shorter, four and a half miles, uh, looping trail with eight stations for rifle and pistol. We kind of split it up. There's four rifle stations, four pistol stations, kind of mixed up along the trail. And then something that uh, that nobody else has, but we stuck in ours, uh, are obstacles between the stations. Uh, because we want to do two things. We want to uh, get your heart rate up a little bit before you hit the stations. Yeah, I know you're saying, dang, I already did two miles. You know, I'm, how much uh, high you want my heart rate? But the other uh, reason that we have it is because we want you to see how your gear is going to function if you if you have to do something besides walk in a straight line, uh, if you have to climb over a a, a gate, or if you have to scale a, a fence panel wall, or if you have to crawl uh, uh, through some piping or through some tractor tires or uh, or through a trench or under barbed wire, uh, all of these things we're going to get you to do at ours because we want you to see how your gear is going to work for you while you do that because uh, there are three things that have to function together in order for you to successfully complete not just our event, but uh, shooting situations in real life. That is, your shooting skills have to match up with your stamina, which has to uh, be helped along by your gear. 
so all of these things have to work together. You have to be able to, uh, with the gear you're wearing, you have to be able to access your your spare magazines. You have to be able to get to your pistol and drive. You have to be able to get to uh, uh, all of the rest of your gear. You have to be able to climb over something without holding your rifle in one hand while you do it. So these are uh, uh, these are the, the things that we put the obstacles out there for, and it's a one-day event. Uh, you'll come uh, early on Saturday morning. We'll start the runners off. We start them off uh, individually at five-minute intervals, and they will start uh, hitting the stations. And uh, usually after about uh, oh, 10, 15 minutes uh, from when the first runner leaves, they'll start hearing the uh, the pop, pop, pop in the distance uh, of the shooting start, and it'll it'll stay a constant popping after that for the next uh, eight hours until the last runner comes in, uh, sometime usually around uh, 4.35, something like that. Right. And you know what I really like about our uh, course as well is the obstacles and the way they've uh, been designed. And as you stated before on the show here that you and I are business partners, and I've noticed I'm really good at coming up with ideas, and then I pass them on to you, and then you actually do them. So uh, yeah, I like the way you've done these obstacles because, you know, I've simply said before, hey, you know, we should get some of these big tractor tires and put them up here or whatever, and I get out there and one day you have them all set up. These obstacles are challenging, but they're not going to break you down. And just about anybody can do them. And, uh, and like you said, it's it's just it's fun. It is a little challenging, but it will also let you know how your gear is working. Can't tell you how many times at the end of these biathlons, you know, we're picking up magazines, flashlights, or whatever, and taking them up front and getting them back to the right, uh, rightful owners, And uh, which is really neat about the gun culture because people turn that stuff in. Thank goodness. Uh, I don't think we've ever had, or any other biathlon I've been to, has ever had a problem with somebody saying, man, I dropped four magazines. Didn't anybody see them? And crickets. That, you know, all the stuff always seems to get back. In fact, I lost a piece of my rifle, a little cover I had on mine, and it was so small I figured it could be anywhere. And someone saw me uh, just this past weekend at Pecos and said, hey, did you lose the cover on your site, doctor? I said, I sure did. Well, so-and-so has it. And one other guy goes, yeah, here it is, and uh, got it back. But, uh, yeah, the obstacles yeah, I think people are do, You're important. right. People do that all the time. They get up to the uh... – they get up to the to the station. They go, "Hey, man, I lost uh, I lost a couple of mags along the way." And Bill will open the drawer and go, "Here they are." And uh, you know they, but but that certainly shows folks. Uh, you know, I'm, I need to secure my magazines better. We had the one guy that uh, did the event uh, the one year with the uh, the lever gun and the wheel gun and just a big bag full of loose bullets. And uh, I don't think uh, I don't think he got all the bullets back, but uh, uh, but it certainly showed him what was going to happen when when he uh, got involved in shooting situations like that because it wasn't that he was a bad shot or anything. It was just that uh, the gear needed a little bit more work. So, well, we have that coming up uh, uh, October 11th. And uh, this coming weekend, we have the first installment of the uh, Battle Road uh, uh, Ghost of Goliath rifle marksmanship project and uh and i guess that's what we're going to finish talking about now uh do you got anything else that you wanted to 
done with the Pecos thing. I'm done with ours, and uh, I'll let you go on with the uh, post of Goliad, Mike. I know uh, you worked really hard on that, and uh, I'm going to sit back and listen to it on the computer. All right, man. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for calling in, we'll and see uh, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you in just a couple of weeks, man. Roger that. Take care. All right. Bye. Okay. Well, I want Mark get to uh, to call and let folks know. I want to tell Smokey thanks for uh, for running uh, the event every year because he does a great job on it. They uh, just like us really don't make any money on the event because it takes a lot of money to do it, and uh, and we don't we so far anyway we haven't picked up any sponsors because we really haven't been we really haven't been pushing uh, for sponsorship, but. Uh, because we kind of like I said, this this started out the uh, the zombie event started out as uh, as just a way for Mark and I and a few of our friends to test our own shooting skills and gear and stuff and and it kind of blossomed into what it's doing now. So we have uh, well over a hundred hundred and forty guys uh, at our events now, and uh, certainly if you're somebody out there that would like to sponsor this event. Uh, sponsor one of the stations or something like that, uh, get in touch with us through the website, com, on the contact page, and uh, we'll be glad to talk to you about it. We've got one guy that we're working with now, Slayton Fabrication, who has made uh, a set of metal targets for us, and we really appreciate that. And I just took delivery of the targets, and there's some really great targets. Uh, one of the stations where we had some close-in pistol shooting, uh, I just wanted to make sure that people weren't going to get... Uh, any backsplash or anything from uh, from the close-end pistol shooting on the steel. And uh, so far, these targets have, have are an excellent design, and they have really done a great job at deflecting uh, the projectiles downward into the ground without getting any backsplash or anything like that. And uh, the targets have a little bit of movement to them, so they'll go backward just a bit but they're set at a good angle to the ground. So anytime you shoot them, it's going to deflect to the ground <clears throat> and uh, and not back uh, toward the uh, the shooter or the range officers. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's get back to to discussing the uh, the fundamentals of making the shot. Now, we start out the course with the with a discussion of safety, all right, because that is actually the most important part of any firearms course is safety, making sure that you're running a safe course. Uh, and we have a basic set of safety rules that we run uh, during the course with the very first safety rule being always keep the muzzle in a safe direction. Always keep the muzzle in a safe direction. Now, this particular safety rule is going to save you uh, most of the time if you uh, happen to to mess up on some of the others. Because if that muzzle is always in a safe direction, if you should happen uh, to have a, a negligent discharge, then... Uh, the the projectile won't do any damage. And first of all, let's 
Well, let's clarify what a safe direction is. And uh, a safe direction has been uh, defined as uh, any direction uh, where an individual will not be injured or property will not be damaged if the firearm is discharged. And what is a safe direction? Well, uh, that pretty much defines it. And when we ask folks on the range what it is, some people will say, well, it's uh, downrange, keeping that firearm up and downrange. Or they'll say, keep it pointed up or keep it pointed down. And the answer is going to vary depending on the situation, okay? Because at the end of the day, it's going to have to fit the definition, which is any direction in which the individuals will not be injured or property won't be damaged, the firearm is discharged. So that will be that could be downrange, or it could be up, or it could be down. Uh, you have to use your com- most the most common sense approach to this in order to make sure that your muzzle is always pointed in a safe direction. All right. Uh, the next firearm safety rule that we use on the range is do not load until given the load command. That means that. Uh, when you're when you're out on the range uh, working as part of this particular course, you don't load the firearm until you're told to load the firearm. Uh, this uh, this helps prevent uh, there being a round in the chamber until uh, it's safe to be one. Uh, the next safety rule is keep your finger off the trigger until your sights are on the target. And this is a pretty common sense uh, safety rule because the way that the firearm in most cases fires is whenever you apply pressure to the trigger and that there is and there is a round in the chamber. All right? In most cases. Uh, there could be equipment malfunction where the rifle could fire when it gets bumped or uh, it could fire on its own due to some type of malfunction uh, in the mechanical aspects of the firearm. can eliminate the major portion of this by not putting your finger on the trigger until your sights are on the target, okay? Once your sights are on the target, uh, even if the rifle discharges, you will be fairly safe because you know exactly where the round is going to impact. It's going to impact where you were where you were pointing the rifle, and that's at the target. Uh, and then while we're at the range, uh, the last safety rule is uh, <clears throat> ensure everyone is following the same. That means that even though you have squared your safe, yourself away, and you are you are making completely sure that you don't have any uh, uh, any safety malfunctions, any safety breaches. You are just taking care of you. If there are other people on the line, that means that uh, there could still be problems. So everyone on the line at a range uh, at an event that we're running uh, is considered to be a safety officer. That means if if you are an attendee and you're there at the event and you're looking around, you see somebody uh, with their finger on the trigger, uh, you don't go crazy. You just say, hey, hey, buddy, remember, 
no fingers on the triggers. Uh, if you see them part starting to put a round in the rifle uh, before it's time, you go, hey, hey, we didn't uh, we didn't get the command to load yet, man. Uh, or if their muzzle is starting to drift around, you can let them know to uh, to watch their muzzle, be aware of their their muzzle direction. <laughs> Everyone is responsible for safety anytime you're at at any type of a marksmanship event, anytime you're ever handling a firearm, everybody is uh has to be part of the safety team. Now there are other things that you need to know whenever you're whenever you're out shooting and that is uh uh <clears throat> don't rely on your firearm safety on the actual safety that's on your rifle. Don't rely on the safety to keep the rifle from firing, okay? Safeties malfunction. These may not be safe at all. Do not rely on your firearm's safety to keep you safe. Rely on the previous rules that I mentioned. <clears throat> keep the muzzle in a safe direction. Keep your finger off the trigger. Do not load until given the load command or until it's time for you to, to load your rifle. Uh, be sure and be aware of what your target is and what is beyond your target. Make sure that you know what you're shooting at. Don't just uh, go somewhere uh, to some place, uh, a shooting range or a uh, or a open field or a dump or anything else. Say, hey, I'm going to shoot at that black thing. Uh, that black thing could be uh, uh, the back end of a... Uh, uh, a rank shank plow or something like that that has four-inch thick steel on it, and uh, you shoot at it, and the round comes buzzing back towards you, just like uh, in that video with the guy with the 50 caliber that shoots his ear must off. Uh, or the target could be uh, something that you can shoot at, but just beyond it uh, is... Uh, is a home or a herd of cows or uh, who knows what. Uh, your bullet uh, is never uh, going to be uh, 100% of the time stopped by whatever you're shooting at, whether it's a target or a berm, whatever. No matter what it is, your bullet always has a possibility of going past what you're shooting at and continuing on. Make sure that if it were to continue on, there is nothing that it could damage, not a person or not property that it could damage, all right? <clears throat> Use the correct ammunition for the firearm you are using. Now, I know that this sounds like a uh, like a pretty uh, uh, ridiculous type of thing to say, like, uh, well, what else would I use? Well, that's a good question. Uh, because uh, I'm sure if you looked into the records at CDC, uh, the Center for Disease Control, and these are some of the folks that keep records on this kind of thing, you would find uh, many uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of incidents of folks who said, well, uh, apparently it was, I was thought I was using uh, 12 gauge ammo and it was 20 gauge or thought I was using 20 gauge ammo and it was 16 gauge uh, something like that and uh, can cause uh, a dangerous situation 
And uh, you may have a bag that you say, look, man, the only thing I ever keep in this bag is my 9mm ammunition. <laughs> but somebody at the range you just went to last time saw some rounds laying on the ground. They figured they were yours. They picked them up and they tossed them in your bag, and they were 40 calibers. <clears throat> so always make sure that the ammunition that you're putting into the rifle or whatever firearm you're using is the correct ammunition for that firearm. Uh, if your firearm fails to fire when you squeeze the trigger, don't get excited. Don't start waving it around. Don't look down the barrel to see if there's something in there stopping it. If it has failed to fire when you squeeze the trigger, it could be uh, the result uh, of a number of things. And uh, one of those things could be that the round is slowly cooking off, and it's going to eventually fire. So if you squeeze the trigger and nothing happens, the best thing you can do is keep the rifle pointed in a safe direction. You can either uh, stand there and hold it in a safe direction. You can set it on the ground in a safe direction, put it on the bench, whatever, remaining it in a safe direction. Uh, wait a, uh, a safe amount of time. Usually if I have a, a misfire or something like that, I'll wait... Uh, Oh, two to three minutes, just to make sure that it's not cooking off, because you don't want that round to cook off as you open the bolt or anything like that, because that can get really nasty. Uh, make sure that it cook off, eject the round, place it somewhere safe, away from the rest of the ammunition, and then uh, you can check the firearm to see if there is anything that could obviously be obviously be seen to prevent it, and uh, and then if need be, you can take it to a a gunsmith to have it checked out. Uh, you should always wear ear and eye protection. And I keep mentioning, I keep meaning to mention eye protection on a lot of the shows that I'm doing, and I, a lot of times I forget, but you should be wearing eye protection when you're shooting uh, and hearing protection as well because you can do some serious damage to your body by sucking in all those sounds without hearing protection. And hearing loss is incremental. That means that uh it you don't do you don't do damage to your ears and then after a few days or a few weeks it gets goes away, it gets better, it goes away. You once you do the damage, the damage is permanent at whatever level you've done it. And each time you damage it uh again you are adding on and piling up that damage, right? Until you get to the point where you, you're just not hearing so good anymore. So make sure you're always wearing hearing and eye protection. And I'm going to talk about this in uh, in another show, but one of the things I want to tell people is that when, and and I'm certain I don't have to tell a lot of you guys that, have, that were doing uh, uh, urban fighting, in Iraq, Afghanistan, I don't have to tell you about this because I'm sure you already know. That is, it's very, very easy to catch uh, bullet, rock, wood, uh, whatever, splinters uh, from a near miss, anything like that, from dust blown up by the muzzle blast of your own rifle, uh, from riding in a vehicle and having a round go through the window, or you being in the vehicle, having to shoot through the window if you have to do that. You do any of this, and you're not wearing uh, eye protection, you could be in for some serious hurt. Uh, I fired uh, a 
uh, a pistol through a window just recently from inside the vehicle. And now, uh, listen, there was a cloud of glass flakes floating around everywhere. Matter of fact, uh, it was like dust on me of glass flakes. Uh, I would be I would be very worried to think about uh, how much would be in my eye had I not been wearing a good uh, tight fitting set of uh, eye protection. Anyway, if you are if you happen to get into a shooting situation and uh, and you catch some type of uh, primary or even secondary fragments in your eyes, that's it, man. You, I don't care how good a shot you are. If you cannot see what you're shooting at, you're done, all right? So make sure that uh, that you think about this and you add uh, eye protection to your uh, your defensive and uh, patrolling-type gear and stuff like that, okay? Uh, <clears throat> because uh, it's very important. Uh, you get an injury to your eye, and it's not, it's not something that uh, you can scrub out with the hydrogen peroxide uh, or uh, or take some Rambo uh, fishing needles and sew up or or get the granny to slap iron to. Uh, I, I protect eye injuries. Sure, you are protecting your eyes, all right? Uh, uh, unless you're a gunsmith, don't alter or modify your firearm, right? Uh, I've seen folks decide to try and do trigger jobs themselves with Dremel tools and stuff like that. They end up with a creeping trigger. End up with a uh, with a with a trigger that can just about fire on its own. Uh, uh, and you can do plenty of other things, even worse, by getting out your handy dandy Dremel or something else and deciding you're gonna. You're going to make this thing shoot better, run faster, jump higher. Uh, leave that to professionally trained gunsmiths, okay? Or get trained yourself. Alter your firearms. Uh, make sure that you understand the uh, mechanical aspects and the handling characteristics of the firearm you are using. <clears throat> All right? <clears throat> okay, that is the. That is my safety briefing, and uh, and let's continue on now with with the uh, discussion of making the shot. Uh, one of the first things that uh, that we talk to folks about usually is well, first at a uh, an event. Like if you guys come to the event this weekend. Uh, what we're going to do is we're not we're, without giving you any instruction. We're going to get you on the ground. We're going to have you shoot a uh, a ten round magazine uh, at a set of targets without any instruction whatsoever, and uh, because we want to see what game you brought with you, right? Listen, I, I have like I said, I've been doing I've been shooting for uh, for forty years. And I've been listening to shooters uh, tell me uh, about their shooting skills uh, for the last uh, 10 years. And 
lot of times the folks that uh, are telling me about their shooting skills and what they actually shoot are two different things. Now, before I started teaching, uh, before I was around a lot of shooters, I would have people tell me, oh, yeah, man, uh, my daddy and I, when we take a uh, ace of spades and we post it on the barn door 400 yards away from the front porch and we sit there and we cut that center out of that card. And I used to always think, man, these guys are really good. I know I can't do that. Uh, these guys are really good. And listen, I, I have yet to find somebody who can do that. Uh, I, I know plenty of guys who can hit the card. And I know people like uh, John Hawes who can uh, who can shoot the 400 meters, no problem. But just your average run-of-the-mill uh, shooter uh, cutting out the center heart on the ace of spades at 400 yards on their barn door from the front porch, and that, uh, that I have yet to see. Uh, and I know that uh, almost 99.999% of the folks who I talk to when I'm not on the range, will tell me, yeah, I am a 400-yard shooter or I'm a 300-yard shooter or, you know, I consistently, I hit the bull at uh, at 400 yards every time. Uh, and then I also get the folks who say, oh, yeah, man, I, I, I was in the military and uh, I was shooting, uh, I shoot, I get my deer every year. And you very may you may very well get your deer every year, all right. But the deers are a pretty big target. And in my experience of uh, pacing out from uh, shooting positions to the actual dead deer, uh, I find that either the deer made a mad last minute dash uh, toward the shooter after it was shot, uh, or the deer was a lot closer than the person initially thought. They'll tell me 250, 300 yards, and it'll be uh, uh, 80, 90 yards. Now they'll say 200 yards, and I think I'll be at about 70 yards. <clears throat> My point is, is that uh, most people will tell you that, and they very well think this, that they are a much better shot than they are. In my actual experience, uh, and like I said, this this is, this goes over thousands of shooters, very well to hit the target uh, at 100 yards. And uh, like I said, this is this is from me going through thousands of people, and uh, and that's many hundreds of people who wrote down excellent whenever they were, you know, when we, we queried them about their shooting skills. Before they arrived, they wrote in there, "I'm an excellent shot," and uh, and they they are doing good just to shoot to 100 yards. Now that's uh, that's uh, that's a very uh, I mean, 100 yards isn't bad to uh, save these shooters in the American Revolutionary War. A uh, hundred yards is about the minimum that you want to let folks get towards you uh, at that time because it took you a good uh, oh, sometimes a good uh, a minute and a half, two minutes to to do a, a reload and in that time you could have a fleet 
four-footed uh, British grenadier uh, into your position with that uh, six-foot uh, spear at the musket that had been fired, and now it's a spear, with that uh, two-and-a-half-foot-long triangular blade uh, pressing it into your gut, right? So <clears throat> what we're going to do when you get there is we're going to get you to shoot uh, a, very, a quick series of the targets so that we can see what your actual skills are and so that you can see them too, so that you can see where you are when you arrive because we want you also to compare what you did Saturday morning with what you did at the end of the day on Sunday and see how much uh, how much your skills have improved, uh, where you need uh, additional instruction, etc. So you're going to first you're going to start out by shooting the uh, that little diagnostic, and then we'll bring everybody back and we will start with our instruction. And the instruction usually starts out with uh, a discussion of sling use because most people, if you ask them what the sling is for. Oh, they're going to tell you. That's for you to carry your rifle uh, out into the field or, uh, you know, to the uh, range, uh, stuff like that. And uh, I'm sure that most of you guys know this, but uh, that's not what the sling is for. Uh, the sling is to assist you in steadying your rifle in order to make the shot. Okay. It's to assist you in steadying your rifle in order for you to make the shot. There's uh, there are several ways you can do this. We're gonna we're just gonna show you uh, probably three of the sling uh, positions so that you can you'll have three to start with. You can modify them from there. You can use them or not use them. All right, but uh, we want you to we want you to give them a try out while you're here while you're with us because uh, because that's what you're pain to come out and do. It's to learn some new stuff. If you didn't want to learn it, or at least try it, you could have done that for free in your in your garage, right? <clears throat> so the first thing we'll try to probably start you out with is the, it's called a, uh, like a hasty, hasty sling. And that is where you have the, the sling is hanging down uh, from the rifle. It's making that little, that little loop hanging down. You're just going to pop it up Towards your weak, I mean, towards your, towards your weak side. If you're a right-handed shooter, that's your strong side. Uh, is your right side. So you're going to pop it towards your weak elbow, and it, it's just going to go up and over your elbow. <laughs> and then you're going to open or close that arm, your support arm in order to put tension on the sling or release it, in order to assist you in steadying the rifle. That's going to be the hasty, hasty. The next one is going to be the hasty sling. The hasty sling is where you have a sling that's connected uh, somewhere up on the top of your rifle, uh, usually right around where the sights are or where the end of the stock is. And then the other end is connected to the rear of the, uh, the buttstock. You're going to hold the rifle in your strong hand, letting the, the loop fall open. You're going to take your support arm, your weak arm, you're going to reach through the loop as if you're as if you're reaching for something out past the rifle. That's going to put the bottom of the sling uh, near your armpit on your weak side. 
You're going to bring the hand back out and around and grasp the stock, and the sling will make one uh, spiral circumference of your arm, and uh, and that circumference of your arm will take up the slack and allow you to use the sling to help steady the rifle. Now, the way to get this into a close uh, a close uh, approximation of where it needs to be is by uh, letting the loop uh, come down, adjusting the loop. So when you take your hand and you hold your hand open and uh, and spread apart, your little finger would be touching the loop and your trigger guard. And that will give you kind of an approximation of how much space you need in the sling in order to use the hasty sling, all right? Because that's how that's just how it works out according to your body geometry and stuff. That's about the amount of space it takes in your sling. <clears throat> the last one we're at, we would tell you about is a loop sling. Now this takes a lot of demonstrations. I'm just going to briefly go through it. But what you would do is on a on a GI type sling, you would disconnect it from the butt part where it goes to the butt. You would pull out enough of the loop that you could slide that open loop over your support arm, bring it all the way up past your bicep to right up against the armpit. You don't want any kind of a loop, any kind of pressure from your sling going over your bicep. The bicep is a big muscle, and you have to have a lot, a lot of blood pumping through it. If you put the attachment onto your bicep or run the sling over a tightened bicep, then what you'll do is you'll start picking up your heartbeat. That means every time that heart beats and runs... Uh, the blood through the bicep, then you will actually be able to visualize that on your front side. Your front side will be bobbing up and down with your heartbeat. So get the loop close to your armpit. Snug it down. Then adjust the uh, the front tension on your sling so that when you are in your shooting position, that the sling coming across the back of your hand is tightened up when you're in your shooting position position, all right? Like I said, it takes a, a visual to assist on this, but that's what we're going to talk to you about first is using your sling. Sling use is very important, guys. Uh, it makes a huge difference. I know a lot of people think, that, think once you have tried it, you will realize how much of a difference it makes. When you see these guys shooting at the Olympics, uh, you see that uh, fancy sling that they're wearing. That's why they're wearing it, because it makes a difference. <clears throat> All right. So once we've talked about sling use, <clears throat> then we're going to talk to you about the the steps that are required uh, for you to uh, to use to make the shot. And that's the actual uh, uh, actual functioning of the rifle, okay? Uh, the first thing that we're going to talk about is uh, how to use your sights. And we'll talk to you about how to, what you want to see when you look at your sights. Now, normally when you look at uh, at a regular set of iron sights, you'll see the front post, which should be like a straight-up uh, post type uh, on the front of your rifle. It will be a blade-type front post. 
And on the rear, usually you'll have some type of a notch or V type system for your rear sight. You want to have, then the way the rifle is designed, is for you to put the the front blade into the center of the V-notch and with the top of the front blade and the top of the ears of the V-notch at the same height. This is how most rifle sights are set up to work. That's the way they want you to, to start with your sight alignment. Now, we'll make a, a quick note here that the uh, the stock factory sights on the Ruger 1022 are a bit different. And and they are on other rifles, but the Ruger 1022, the one we see mostly out there, if you have some other type of, uh, of sights, we'll talk to you about those sights. But the Ruger 1022 is a bead, what ends up looking like a bead when you look at it from the rear, and it goes into a cup that is uh, that is centered in the rear notch type sights, and that cup is set on a piece of metal that can move up and down. Okay, and this is important because if you if you are looking at the Ruger 1022, if you're looking at that front bead and you're putting it in the center uh, of the V notch and at the same height as the ears. When you adjust your sights, nothing is going to happen because the whole V-notch is not going to move. It's just that little uh, that little section of metal that has the cup in it that's going to move. So you make sure that you are putting that uh, front bead, which is going to look like a, a small sphere, that you're putting it in to the cup that holds it in the rear notch. And that way, whenever you make sight adjustments, they're going to actually do something. Okay? That is your sight alignment, making sure that your front and rear sights are properly aligned. And uh, when you come to the class, we'll have a lot of visuals uh, to show you on this. And if you're using the peep sights, then you're, and that's usually on most of the military or battle-type rifles, that's where the rear sight is not a V-notch, it's a circle. What you're going to do is you're going to put that front blade centered within that circle is if you had crosshairs in that circle, you're going to put in the center with the top of the blade going up to the halfway mark of the circle. That is how it's supposed to sit in there. Now, your your eyes and your mind, your your brain are linked, and your your mind wants to see symmetry. It wants to see things uh, correctly spaced, all right? So a lot of this job is going to be done for you because your eye and your brain are going to work uh, together in order to try and help you ensure that you have it placed right, but you have to pay attention to it and make sure that you're doing it. <clears throat> uh, with your scope, uh, it's, a lot of this is done for you because the uh, the crosshairs are already lined up in your scope. They're already set where they're supposed to be. You just have to ensure that when you're looking through the scope that you don't see any type of uh, shadows anywhere around it. You've got a good, clean, clear picture in your glass and that the crosshairs are indeed centered within the circle of the opening of your optics when you're looking through it. <clears throat> okay, that is your sight alignment. 
That's the very first thing you want to do is make sure that your sights are aligned correctly. The next thing that you're going to uh, to work on is your sight picture. And that is making sure that the front sight and the rear sight are in alignment. The front sight is on the target where you want it to be. <clears throat> That's making sure that you have those three things lined up together. The rear sight and the front sight positioned correctly in correct alignment and that the correctly aligned sights are on the target where they should be, all right? The next thing that uh, you're going to work on is your respiratory pause. Now, this is a very, very important part of your shooting cycle. When you breathe, your body moves, okay? That's, that's just the way it is. When you breathe, when you take in air, it goes into your lungs. Your lungs expand, and they, the volume that it creates, it causes your chest to expand. The way that your lungs expand is because your diaphragm uh, is, a, is a big muscle there at the bottom of, your, of the chest cavity there, right beneath your, uh, your lungs. It uh, contracts and pulls down, and that causes the lungs to expand and take in air. And then the air leaves, and uh, the uh, chest cavity closes back up as the lungs are, uh, the air is coming out of your lungs. Now, when you do this, it causes movement to your body. Anytime you have movement to your body, it causes movement to your rifle. There is absolutely, positively, 100%, no way around this. When you breathe, your rifle moves. That's the way it goes. So, what is the answer to this? Because if your rifle is moving when you're shooting, there is absolutely no way for you to have a to make a consistent shot because it's it's going to move different every single time. The answer is for you to make the shot when you are not breathing, okay? That means you have to make the shot when you are not either taking in air or expelling air. And you can do this in a number of ways. You can breathe the air in, uh, let it out to where it's uh, where you would normally have a full uh, uh, you would have a full expulsion of the air without any extra pushing. <laughs> and uh, that's the bottom of your cycle. You breathe in, breathe out, and you're at the bottom of your cycle. Now, you'll have a couple of seconds at that point because in your normal breathing cycle, you're not breathing in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, unless you're running, okay, unless you're running. If you are just sitting still, breathing in, out, in, out, in, out, then you are going to poison yourself with oxygen. Oxygen is actually a poisonous gas, whether whether you realize that or not. It's actually a poisonous gas, and it can kill you, all right? Our bodies have learned how to use it. That doesn't make it less poisonous. It just means that our bodies have learned how to use it. Uh, 
if you just breathe in, out, in, out, in, out, you will you will pass out. Uh, so you breathe in, you breathe out. There's a couple of seconds while your body is using that air, and your blood is pumping and it's uh, it's running, filling back up in uh, the alveoli in your lungs. You uh, you make the shot then. Now you can also do it by uh, by maybe taking a quarter of a breath in, or a half of a breath in, or taking a full breath and letting a half a breath out, something like that. You can you can do it in uh, numerous ways. Uh, I do it at the bottom of my cycle. I breathe in, I breathe out. I take that opportunity to make the shot, and then I'll restart the cycle. So I'll I'll take the shot normally at the bottom of the cycle. And the reason I do that is because it is a consistent place for me. In order for you to be a good shot, you need to be a consistent shot. In order for you to be a consistent shot, you have to make the shot the same way every time. All right? Because when you start introducing variables into it, then you you can't account of, to for what those variables will do to the impact of your round-down range. So... <clears throat> You have to be consistent. For me to be consistent, bottom of my cycle. You may you may find something else works for you, and if so, fine. Uh, along with your sight alignment and your breathing, the main thing is to be consistent, to do it at the same place every time. That's what we want you to do is find, find some place and stick with it and work with that particular uh, uh, respiratory cycle uh, sight, picture, whatever it is. All right. So you're going to uh, make sure that you have your sights in the correct alignment. You're going to make sure that you have your correctly aligned sights on the target. And then you're going to pay attention to your respiratory cycle. And you're going to take the shot in your respiratory pause. <clears throat> now, the next thing that we want you to think about, fundamental and one part is physical and one part is mental. We want you to make sure that you are focusing your eye on the front sight. You're going to focus your eye on the front sight. And then you're going to focus your mind on keeping the front sight on the target. Now, I know this sounds kind of ridiculous because you're thinking, well, certainly I'm going to keep on the front on my 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 front sight on the target. Where else would I put it? Well, that's a good question because if if you miss the target, then you're putting it somewhere else. And a lot of people miss the target. So where are they putting their front sight? Well, it's not on the target. If they were if they had their front sight on the target, it would be hitting the target every time they pull the trigger. So they're putting it somewhere else. Let's go back to the beginning. First thing off is we're going to ask you to focus your eye on the front sight. This is the physical aspect of it. Your eye is a mechanical function, no different than your scope or binoculars or anything else. It has an actual uh, mechanical uh, adjustment on it that's going to lengthen or shorten your focus so that you can look at a specific item. Now, we already told you we want you to look at three different things while you're making the shot. That's the rear sight, the front sight, and the target. Your eye uh, 
can only focus on one focal binoculars or anything else. If you're, if I want to look at a, a bird 50 feet away and I adjust the binoculars to 50 feet away and then I look out into the field at 100 yards, I can see out into the field, but I can't see clearly what's out there until I readjust the focus and the, I reset the focus for 100 yards. And when I look back at the bird, it's a little bit blurry, so I have to readjust that in order to get the focus back on the bird at 50 yards. Okay, the sights are the same way. If you look at your sights, you can only look at one thing and have it clear. Well, what should it be? Should it be the rear sights? No, because if you focus on the rear sights, that means that your your front sight and the target are going to be slightly out of focus. Um, that's going to present a problem. Uh, what about the target? Let's focus on that target. Make sure we see that target. Well, if you do that, then how are you going to be able to tell exactly where your your sights are? You'll be able to see the target very clearly, but what about where your sights are? Well, the answer is going to be that we want you to focus your eye on the front sight. The front sight is what determines where your round is going to impact. So you need to have your focus clearly and sharply on the front sight. You need to make sure the front sight is in very sharp focus. You can have the front sight in sharp focus, and you can have the target being a little bit fuzzy or a little bit blurry. That's fine. If you put that sharply defined front sight in the center of that a little bit out-of-focus target, guess what? You're going to hit the center of that a little bit out-of-focus target. So the first part of this fourth step is that we want you to make sure that you're, you are focusing your eye. Now, if you have a scope, it's going to be the same thing. We want you to focus your eye on the crosshairs, on whatever portion of, of your optics determines where the round is going to hit. If you have a red dot, if you have a, uh, a little arrow, if whatever you have, if you have a post inside your, the, the reticle of your optics, you're going to focus your eye on that particular item. And then the second part is a mental aspect. You've got the physical aspect of actually focusing your eye on the front side. Now you're going to have the mental aspect of ensuring that the front sight remains on the target. And I know that, that you guys are saying, well, where else would it be? And like I said before, the answer is it, 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 it's going to be all over. It could be anywhere. Because we're asking you to do a lot of things, right? We're asking you to do a lot of things while you're making the shot. Uh, breathing, uh, your sight alignment, your body positions, your sling, all of the rest of the stuff. We're asking you to do all this stuff. And to it all, you have to have an overriding command that supersedes everything else, and that is front sight on the target. Front sight on the target. That's what has to be an overriding command that supersedes all the others, other than a safety breach. That's making sure that your front sight is on the target when the rifle fires. Because if your front sight is not on the target when it fires, I can almost guarantee you, uh, unless some through some freak accident or ricochet, that the round is not going to hit the target. It's not going to impact where you want it to. So no matter how silly this sounds, it's 100% important 
understand that even if you have to repeat this over and over, front sight on the target, front sight on the target, because I had to do that when I was learning to shoot with this method because uh, at the last second I may I may release that command in order to do something with the trigger squeeze or something else, and you can't. This this has to be an overriding a primal command, and that is front sight on the target. All right, that brings us to trigger squeeze. All right, and I say trigger squeeze because that's what we want you to do. That's why it's not called trigger jerk or trigger yank or trigger pull or trigger butt or trigger flinch. It's the trigger squeeze. In order... For you to make the shot, you have to make you have to be a consistent shooter. In order for you to be a consistent shooter, you have to do you have to make the to make the rifle uh, mechanical aspects uh, function the same way every time. The way you're going to do that is you're going to apply incrementally increasing pressure uh, down on the lowest part of the trigger in a directly rearward fashion until the rifle fires. Like I said, this is an incrementally increasing pressure. I mean, you're going to put pressure onto the trigger. Your finger is going to be placed on the trigger in the same place every time. Now, you determine where that's going to be according to your your body's uh, geometry, your hand size, the rifle size, the trigger size, etc., but it needs to be between the point on your index finger and the first crease, not farther toward the end of your finger, not past the pad toward the tip. Once you get out that far, then you begin pushing the trigger away from your strong side. It means you're actually pushing the rifle sideways instead of pulling the trigger to the rear. It means you're introducing uh, extra superfluous motion into the rifle at a time when you're attempting to keep the rifle absolutely motionless. You don't want to go back farther than the first crease of your finger because then you begin pulling the trigger toward your strong side, introducing uh, superfluous motion and can't again. So you're going to find the right place between the point of the pad of your index finger and the first crease. You'll place the trigger finger on the trigger in there consistently into the same place, and you apply incrementally increasing pressure directly to the rear of the trigger until it breaks, until the rifle fires. You'll get yourself in the habit of doing this the same way every time. You can't yank the trigger. When you do, you introduce extra motion to it. Usually when people yank the trigger, they're going to pull the rifle, they're going to pull the impact of the round to their strong side. If you're right-handed and you yank the trigger, usually you're going to pull the impact of the round to the right side of your target. Uh, <clears throat> the, the trigger squeeze is very important. And the way it works is like this. You should be able to begin your triggers till you actually uh, release the uh, the the firing mechanism and it fires at any point before it fires, you should be able to stop that trigger squeeze, hold it 
at that point without continuing or lessening your pressure in case you have to move the sights back on the target and then begin anew at that same point with putting additional pressure until it fires. That means if you can't do this, that means there's a good chance that you're yanking the trigger because I'm sure you guys have probably done it at some point in your life when you've got the front sight on the target or your scope on the target and you start squeezing that trigger and you see the sight has moved off, but you can't do anything about it because you're already firing. You're yanking the trigger. You're making it fire. You should be able to stop at any point until it actually fires. You should be able to stop in this process, move the sights back onto the target, and then continue on from the point you stopped at and finish the firing sequence. <clears throat> All right. Uh, one of the things that we'll usually talk to people about this as well is that because you're placing the incrementally increasing pressure on the trigger, you should, one way to think about this is that when you're doing this in a in a slow determined fashion, uh, not during a rapid fire sequence, but during a slow determined fashion, uh, the rifle should fire uh, at a point that is almost a surprise to you. And the reason I say that is I say almost a surprise, right? You're at the range, you've got a rifle, you've got a round in the chamber, you've got the safety off, your finger on the trigger, and you're putting pressure on it, it's going to fire. But when the moment that it actually fires should be somewhat of a surprise to you because if you know exactly when it's going to fire, the only way to know when it's going to fire is either after you've fired uh, several thousand rounds out of it or because you're yanking the trigger, okay? Because the only way you're not going to know exactly when it's firing is when you make it fire at that point. The only way to make it fire is to yank that trigger. I'm going to make it fire right now. I'm going to make it fire right now. Now, as I said before, when you introduce that yank, that jerk to it, you are affecting the impact of the round downrange. I don't care how light you think your yank or your jerk is. I guarantee you it is affecting the impact of the round downrange. <clears throat> All right. Once you've gotten to this point, once you have caused the round to fire, the next thing we want you guys to think about is holding the trigger to the rear. All right, now why are you doing this? You're holding the trigger to the rear for just a fraction of a second, just long enough to let the the round exit the rifle. Now, I know uh, that usually a lot of times when you think about it, you think that, uh, that, that squeezing the trigger and making the rifle fire is an instantaneous thing, but it's not there is actually a measurable amount of time. Of time. Now, you, you, you'd have to have some really good equipment to measure it, but there is a measurable amount of time between when the firing pin strikes the primer on the shell and when the round exits the barrel. You know, I ask the folks uh, at events, I'll say, look, when, that, when the firing pin strikes the primer, on that round, when you squeeze the trigger and the firing pin strikes 
that primer, right at that moment, how fast is the bullet traveling? The answer is zero. The round is not moving. When at that moment, when the frying pin strikes the primer, the round is not moving. It has a measurable amount of time from between the when the prime when the firing pin hits the primer to when it ignites a charge and then builds up enough pressure to during that small amount of time you can affect the impact of the round down range. One of the easiest ways to do this is to pop that finger off the trigger. And here's why. The, nothing that your body does is instantaneous or isolated. For me to move my finger, even a tiny bit, the movement starts up in the top of my shoulder. Well, it probably starts in the top of my head. goes into my neck, goes into my shoulder, comes down through the forearm, down the length of the hand, and then the finger moves. No matter how fast I think I'm moving that finger, it's not that fast. And no matter how much I think I'm only moving that finger, I'm not only moving that finger. I'm moving my whole hand, my whole arm, my elbow, my shoulder. So for me to take my finger off the trigger means I have to initiate that movement uh, up in my shoulder, my elbow, my hand. That means I'm introducing movement to the rifle before the round has left the barrel. Why would I do that? Why? There's no reason to do that. So I don't. What I do instead is the minute the rifle fires, I hold the trigger to the rear. I don't let my finger pop off. I hold it to the rear for a fraction of a second. Then I let it, then I release it. When I release it, I only go far enough so that the trigger, so that I can feel the sear receipt, and that's as far as I go. I don't reintroduce all of the slack into the trigger. Why would you do that? If you reintroduce the slack into the trigger, then you have to remove it again. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to fire the round. I'm going to move the trigger finger forward enough so that I feel the trigger reset. Once I do, that's as far forward as I go. And I'll go all the way forward because I don't want to have to take all that slack back out because I may need to make uh, uh, additional, I may need to fire additional rounds and make another shot. When I do, I don't want to have to go back through this, all this slack I just put back in the trigger. So when the rifle fires, I hold it to the rear. Once the round is exited the barrel, I move the trigger finger forward until the trigger receipts, the, tr- the sear receipts, and I stop there in anticipation of additional shots. At the same time that I'm making the shot, <clears throat> call the shot. All right? Now, This is an important part of making the shot. Calling the shot doesn't do anything for the round you just fired, but it does everything for the round you're about to fire next. When I say say you're going to call your shot, that means at the moment the trigger breaks, at the moment that the trigger breaks, you are going to take a mental snapshot of where the front sight was on the target when the rifle fires. Now, you can do this. Your your brain is a very complex machine, and hooked up to your eyes, allow it to uh, allow it to take a snapshot. 
you can take a mental snapshot of where the the front sight was on the target when the rifle fired before you receive the recoil from the fire, right? Before you receive the recoil or hear the report, you can take a mental snapshot of where the front sight was on the target. You're doing this because you want to see, you want to make sure that you know where your front sight was when the rifle was fired. If you take that mental snapshot and you see that target, you see the front sight on the target, uh, in the center of the target, or at the 6 o'clock hold, wherever it is, we're going to talk about that in a second, then when you get down to take a look at your target, there should be the round, you should have a hole where the round is impacted exactly where you saw the front sight when the rifle fired. If you take your mental snapshot around that you're firing and you see your front sight is uh, to the left and low of the target and you get down and you take a look at your target, you walk down to the line, you take a look at the target, and you see a hole left and low on the target, that's a good round. Not because of where it hit, but because you confirmed that the rifle obeyed your commands, and when you put your front sight low and left on the target, that's where the round impacted. So you're using your calling of the shot as confirmation that either your front sight is in the correct place or if it wasn't. Uh, And that also means in order for you to do this, you have to have your eye open at that point. If you cannot call your shot, you might be closing your eyes. And uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute too because that's part of your flinch, buck, jerk, blink. But... If you can't do it, you may be closing your eye. And listen, I'm going to tell you that almost every shooting school you go to are going to recommend that you fire the shot with your eyes open, okay? It's just been proven that it's better that way. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's talk for a minute about uh, sight picture. And we spoke about this earlier when we were talking about the steps the correct steps for making the shot. And that is when you're looking at your properly aligned rear sights and then you're looking at you're looking to see where they are on the target. Uh, you want to place them in the correct place on your target. Now you can have them you can put them wherever you want. Uh the military a lot of times will teach a, a center of mass uh, shooting uh, uh, sight uh, picture because that's what they want you to do. They want you, they want you to shoot rapidly and they want you to get uh, used to the idea of having that uh, having the rifle fire when those sights line up center of mass. When you get to the middle of your target, that you that that coincides with your squeezing of the trigger, so that you have the best possible chance of hitting that target by using a center of mass, and that's that's good. But that's also uh, that's also good for close-in targets. 
as your targets get farther away, they get smaller. Your front sight remains uh, fairly large. Usually front sights are around seven minutes wide. Now, target, your actual, uh, a, an actual human silhouette uh, out at uh, uh, 400, 500 meters may be, uh, may only be uh, three or four minutes wide. That means it is a lot smaller than your front sight post. So if you're trying to go center of mass at a shot at distance, it might be hard because your front sight is going to obscure the target because it's much bigger than the target. Uh, there's ways around that. Uh, normally, one of the things that uh, that we will teach is for folks to uh, – if you're going to be shooting at distance, is to zero your rifle uh, at a 6 o'clock hold position. Now, when you're at a 6 o'clock hold position, what you're doing is you're placing your sight, if you're envisioning a clock, uh, as your target. And you're placing your front sight so that it sets uh, right there at the number 6. If you were... If you're shooting at a pumpkin, uh, you know, 100 yards away, then when you lined your rifle up on that pumpkin, your front sight's a fence post, you know, at 100 yards, and it would look like there was a fence post uh, with a pumpkin sitting on it. And that's how you would adjust uh, your zero. (laughs) You're doing it that way because what you're going to do whenever you zero at, at, at that position is you're going to uh, adjust the impact of your round approximately two minutes above your front sight so that the round is impacting two minutes above your front sight. That way you can see what you're shooting at. If I'm shooting at uh, a D target, which is about like a human silhouette, if I'm shooting at that D target, at uh, 400 meters, that means I'm going to center my front sight. Uh, I'm going to put the the D target centered on the top of my front sight. But it's going to be smaller in width than my front sight. But I'm going to put my front sight uh, like at the waist of that D target, and then my round is going to impact two minutes of arc uh, above the front sight at 400 uh, yards. So that is where that is where my six o'clock hold is going to be different from center of mass or center of target uh, uh, sight picture. Okay, you you decide what you're going to use for a sight picture, but Sight pictures are not interchangeable. I mean, you've got to pick one. You've got to stick with it. Uh, and uh, and we'll, we'll we'll talk more about uh, about uh, battle sight zeros and uh, the impact of your round and stuff like that uh, when we go to KD on the Sunday of the event. <clears throat> but that's is the discussion for the uh, sight picture. 
and that's putting your properly aligned front and rear sights onto the target and putting it on at the same place every time. <clears throat> All right. Uh, okay, I've got uh, I've got a caller on the line here. I'm going to take them real quick and uh, see what they have to say. Uh, area code 712, you're on the air. Yes, sir. How are you guys doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Who's this? This is Mark. Just listening in. I don't need me to take up any of your time. I'm just listening in. Oh, okay, Mark. All right. Well, uh, will you have any comments on the uh, on the show already? No, no, no. Good as always. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, you, you, brother. You guys, you guys are my entertainment for about the last four or five years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. I hope that we're yeah. hope we're doing some good and passing on some information. Oh yeah, yeah. As always, thank you. Keep All right, good man. work. Thank yeah. you. All right. Uh, okay, so that is that's covering the uh, the steps uh, for the mechanical and mental uh, procedures for making the shot. Uh, we got about. Uh, about nine minutes left. That's going to give me enough time to talk to you very quickly about uh, natural point of aim. All right? Uh, natural point of aim, and, and it's usually, once you've explained the, the full word, and once it's usually pulled down to NPOA. And what is NPOA? What is natural point of aim? Uh, natural point of aim is the uh, the position, the stance, or the posture, uh, which allows for the least amount of muscle input for holding the sights on the target. So, in other, wor- in other words, this is this is where y- you are in your shooting position, and it's where once you are in the correct shooting position, where your body, where your where your body wants to hold the rifle, where it wants the shot to go. Uh, so. Think of it this way: uh, you uh, you take your you take a blindfold and you put it on. You get your rifle, you get the sling adjusted just right. You get down into the prone position. You get set up down there in the prone position, and uh, you get everything set up just the way you want it. <clears throat> get into your respiratory cycle. You'll be breathing in and out, in and out, and then. When you come to your respiratory pause, uh, there is no uh, there is no muscle that's pushing against the rifle anywhere. And we'll talk about the positions and the proper use of positions and stuff uh, on our next uh, episode. But you'll be in a relaxed position with the rifle supported by bone, not muscle, supported by bone and the sling. And if you were in a nice, relaxed position where nothing was really moving, uh, in the proper position, your rifle is supported and, and uh, there's really no, no vibration, no wavering, anything like that. You breathe in, you breathe out, you got to your respiratory pause, and somebody popped that blindfold off you and you open your eyes. Where the rifle was pointing right then, that is your natural point of aim, Okay. What you want to do is to take your natural point of aim and place it 
onto the target so that your natural point of aim and your target are, are, are coinciding. The way you would do that is not by taking your support arm and pushing the rifle to the right or left. The way you would do that is by moving your whole body that is pivoting on one point. Normally, that's going to be your support elbow. It's pivoting on one point, and your whole body moves. Your whole body moves until you've adjusted your natural point of aim onto the target. Think about it this way. Uh, Most of you guys uh, have had those plastic uh, toy soldiers, right? And uh, certainly you know the one, the toy soldier that's that's either laying down and prone or it's kneeling firing or it's the one that's standing firing. Now, you can take and... And holding that that prone toy soldier on the ground, you can reach up with your finger, push the rifle over so that it's pointing at the target you want to hit, and make it uh, make your toy soldier hit the target that way. The problem is when you let go of that finger, the rifle goes back to where it wanted to be, you know where it where it naturally sits on that toy soldier in his position. Your body does the same thing. You can muscle that rifle over the target and attempt to make the shot. The problem is you're using muscle to do that. So you've got this muscle pushing onto the rifle. Now, when you go into recoil, whenever you fire the rifle and it goes into recoil, it's being affected uh, in that recoil by the muscle pushing on it. And you can never really determine where the round is going to hit consistently because the recoil and the muscle aren't going to be the same every time. So what you have to do instead is move your body, pivoting on that one point, when the prone position will be on your support elbow, you're going to pivot, moving your whole body, until you bring that point onto the target. Once you've done this, Once you've gotten to that natural point of aim, you can breathe in and breathe out. And every time you get, if you've adjusted it so that your front sights are on the target at the bottom of your respiratory cycle or wherever you're taking a respiratory pause, you adjust it so that your sights are on the target at your respiratory pause. Time you return to that respiratory pause, your sights return to the target. Because there is no muscle action pushing onto the rifle, when the rifle goes into recoil, it goes straight back into recoil. When it comes out of recoil, it's back into your natural point of aim so that whenever you return to your respiratory pause, your sights are back on target. It returns to target without you doing anything. That's what your natural point of aim to. Now, look, this sounds kind of complicated. Like, it's, man, how am I ever going to find this? How am, I, how am I ever going to get to the perfect natural point of aim so that I can return to it every time? Well, it takes a little bit of practice. It takes a little bit of practice. But you can check it on every shot. And when you check it is you get lined up where you think, where you think your natural point of aim is. You put your sights on the target. Uh, once you've adjusted it so that your sights are on your target at your respiratory pause, 
close your eyes, you breathe in, you breathe out, maybe gave yourself a little shake, pop your eyes open, that first image you see is what your natural point of aim is. If it's on your target, then you are in your natural point of aim. If it's not, then you need to make an adjustment, whichever way, left, right, up, or down, in order to get to your natural point of aim. You make an adjustment, do your check again, and see if it is, and repeat that until you're at your natural point of aim. Now, the more you shoot, the more you shoot practicing, the better you're going to get at this until your natural point of aim coincides with with your... Uh, when you get down into position, you put your sights on the target, you end up at your natural point of aim. Uh, it just takes some practice to do this. Okay, uh, I've got the 90-second mark in my ear. I want to tell everybody thanks for listening tonight. We'll carry on with the uh, natural, with the uh, uh, part two of making a shot this next Thursday. Remember, we have the Ghost of Goliad Rifle Marksmanship class. This coming weekend, we have the Battle Road Zombie Biathlon, October 11th. Uh, we've got the Three Percenters Grid Down Communications class, December 11th. Uh, for you guys that uh, want to make sure that you're uh, that you're introduced to uh, a combo, uh, we have Becky Acres uh, on oct- uh, October 16th. Until then, guys, uh, take care. God bless and keep you all. And uh, we will see you this uh, next Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.